Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Evan Clark, and my guest for this episode is a political journalist, columnist for the I newspaper. He's the author of the books Brexit, What the Hell Happens Next, and How to Be a Liberal. He's also a regular panelist on the podcasts uh, The Bunker and Oh God, What Now? But more important to us at the moment, he's a massive comics fan, <laughs> so it's a huge book club welcome to Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian. Hello, hello, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for giving up your time this lunchtime. Uh, the world is almost literally on fire and you're very busy at the moment, but let's, let's talk about comics for an hour instead. Yeah, you know what, that actually sounds really quite nice at the moment. It might be quite nice to escape into that world just for a brief moment. So before we get to Brink, take us back to your first comics. When did you start reading comics and uh, can you remember your first experiences with 2000 AD? Yeah, I can even remember my first... Comic. I mean, I've been reading comics all my life, and I, the first comic is uh, it was a Spider-Man comic with Doctor Octopus. I, I think that was I was about three years old. It was in Chile, um, and I even I, I still have that comic, by the way, which is primarily because I'm evidently completely unable to ever get rid of any of them, despite this pokey London flat, which is much more pokey by virtue of the fact that I can't get rid of any of the comics. Um, El Hombre Araña, which is the Spanish title for the Spider-Man. Oh, right. Um, yeah, so I still have that one. My first memory of 2000 AD was this guy, Stuart, who used to babysit me. And he had these old... They weren't actually, um, they weren't actually progs. They were, you know, the kind of American-sized editions of Best of 2000 AD, this or that. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, and it was a, ne- it was a nemesis. And I don't know how old I was. I must have been like eight or nine, maybe. And I just found it the most sort of brain-shreddingly weird thing I had ever laid eyes on, really. Like, the, the main thing I remember was just feeling deeply uneasy at, at the morality of it. Because you have this... I just couldn't comprehend it as a child, right? Like, you've got this guy. I mean, the way he looks, you know, with the hooves and the face is so unbelievably bizarre. But then I kind of realized that we're supposed to be on his side, but his intention is basically to, to wipe out the human race. <laughs> and as a kid, it just absolutely discombobulated me. That story ends with um, talking about it growing into this kind of huge maggot sort of creature and his own sort of soldiers trying to stab away at him. And those panels are just imbr- like absolutely stamped into my brain as this kind of horrific, grotesque, organic horror and obviously, from that point, I was completely gripped <laughs> and never stopped reading it after that. Fantastic. And are you sort of like a reader of the, the prog now? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I get the prog and I get the meg. Um, and also, obviously, I mean, I buy, I'm, I'm not one of those sort of 2000 AD people that sneers or dislikes uh, sort of American superhero comics. I really like American superhero comics. And I buy a bunch of sort of indie books. So, I mean, my palette is quite quite broad really I, I don't I've tried reading manga so many times and it just doesn't work for me I can't get into it so that's the one area ironically like the, the area of greater success for comics at the moment but I just can't I can't appreciate it it's, it's not for me but but everything else I, I'm consuming at a, at a pretty healthy rate excellent stuff and tell us what book did you uh, decide to pick for the book club you know the one that we agreed on Brink, uh, volume two, which is Skeleton Life, it runs from Progs 223 to 240. I'm reading it in these, 
I mean, obviously I read it when it was in the prog, but I'm reading it in the sort of ultimate collection edition where it's bundled up with the first volume. Yeah. I mean, this is probably my, this is probably my, I mean, I don't want to, it's no point making a list, is there? But it's Brink or Dread Stories by Rob Williams. Uh, at the moment in the prog, the, the two main things that get me tremendously excited. Like it's, it's pretty, it's pretty reliably good. The prog at the moment it has been for years, but those two things are really where I find my happy place. So let's say Brink, just to the, the facts and figures, Brink is by obviously Dan Abner and uh, Ian Colbard, or INJ Colbard as he's credited, lettered by Simon Boland, edited by Matt Smith. You say obviously it's your sort of like happy place in 2000 AD whenever it returns. Tell, I mean, just fill us in on Brink. What is the sort of setting for it? And particularly what's the task or, you know, what faces our protagonist in this second volume? It's a, a, an incredibly weird I guess, sci-fi horror procedural story um, set on these habitats, which are sort of very large floating space stations where the remains of humanity are bundled together in extremely claustrophobic conditions. The Earth has um, become uninhabitable. Um, And Bridge, who is our protagonist, sort of works for the police. What are they actually called? uh, Habitat Habitat Security. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right, and, and is investigating a series of crimes typically uh, related to sects, which are these sort of religious groups, which may be connected to each other, might not be connected to each other, um, whose work, either by, you know, in various ways, sometimes seemingly by sort of um, putting drugs in the food supply, sometimes by strange minor changes to the architectures of the station, help to drive people insane and see these kind of horror god images which alternatively it may simply be that these horror god images are actually real and would operate regardless of the architecture or the food supply it's a tremendously strange kind of kind of threatening paranoid deeply paranoid environment and in the second volume unlike the first the first volume you're really in one of these very very crowded habitats no room to breathe when you get to um skeleton life you're operating in a habitat that's still under construction where there's hardly anyone there so it's almost completely empty and it probably operates a little bit more like a haunted house story and it's i mean i I, you know i'll tip my hat and say that like you i think it's one of the best comics around at the moment brink Mm -hmm. um amazing concept science fiction a sort of police procedural and then these sort of as you say these darker hints of cosmic horrors um lurking at the edges that you're never quite sure if it's real or imagined um and i I don't know quite how dan abner manages all this he sort of delivers all this in five pages in a weekly prog and then it reads very well in a collected edition as well doesn't it that really struck me, you know, because I obviously I went I reread it yesterday in preparation for this, and I hadn't ever I hadn't read it a second time yet, and I'd only ever read it in the prog. I'd only ever read it in five page bits, and I find it very easy to follow in the prog. I mean, unlike some strips where I sort of get a bit lost with who was the, what was this guy trying to do again, I never really have that problem with Brink, and yet reading it in one go, you really get that sense of the pace, the novelistic structure of it, the fact that it's prepared. And this is really, I think, the thing that differentiates it from almost any strip in 2000 AD of it is prepared to just have five pages of talking. 
You know, you don't have that usual frenzy of action that, that most writers feel you have to have for an anthology title with only five pages per story per week. You actually just get a sense of, no, we can let this thing breathe. And I think that fits the prog perfectly well. Like, it doesn't have to be this relentless pounding of, of storyline and, and of plot, as it often is. I, I think it's something that actually quite a few other writers could, could take notes from in that respect. And the other thing I note is that... Um the creators do this thing where they sort of like give us an almost like an augmented reality in that little captions will pop up identifying who the new person appearing is or a little device or where they are um Mm -hmm. and then of course it also did that weird thing i didn't notice it so much in this volume but where they sort of redacted swear words um almost as if we're viewing it through some sort of external device oh that's interesting yeah you're right, that changes. I mean, first of all, we should probably do a shout out to Simon Boland, who's the letterer, who all of those little data boxes are incredibly useful, but also they're very unobtrusive. They don't really get in your way if you feel that you know what you're dealing with somewhere. He does excellent work. And again, you would say that with the censoring of the words. I, I mean, correct me if I'm I thought the censoring of the words started when they're on that planet where you get fined or you get beeped out for, for swearing. Because certainly in these first volumes, there's a, there's a little bit of swearing. I think they say shit a few times and, and nothing seems to be bleeped out. But I, I noticed that when it came back for, what is this, the fifth or the sixth story in the 45th anniversary edition of the It's prog. just started the fifth book, I think, hasn't it? Fifth. Okay, fifth. Yeah. So when it came back, that wasn't set on the sort of anti-swearing planet <laughs> and they were still blocking out the swear words. So I'm not sure what's going on there. I'm pretty fucking sure that Dan Abner and Colbard know exactly what they're doing and that anything like that is there for a reason. Yeah. And, you know, there's a certain... Let's say that there's new characters introduced in book two. We've, you know, we've got on a new habitat that's under construction, um, the Galena habitat, and we meet, like, the owner, the boss of the corporation that's building it. We also meet an interesting pilot. We meet new security staff. Did you enjoy, like, you know, uh, a slight broadening of the cast for this uh, second book yeah i mean it's, it's also worth mentioning that the cast are often really quite funny we don't think of the humor that you see in these books but quite often you you actually get characters introduced predominantly female characters that are that are actually very funny um so first of all i mean we get jabrani who's um another female sort of security officer who she spends a bunch of time with what's not really mentioned about abner so much is that this character is very funny so you'll have scenes where i mean there's one scene where she says you know if i can find this guy i want to punch him in the neck and a few pages later she does absolutely make sure at a moment of high drama that she makes sure that she punches this guy in the neck take note of the fact that like let's say i think probably about 15 pages into this story you get six characters together no one's wearing superhero outfits you know no one no one's wearing anything that that necessarily distances themselves from the other but you know exactly who everyone is you can tell by virtue of the hairstyles you can tell by virtue of race by virtue of build by manner you're introduced and this is one of the things you get when you get writers and artists who are working tremendously well together like in a very short period of time Abnett tells you important things about a character and Coleman is presenting them in a way that they are easily differentiatable even when you've got plenty of characters on a page now over and over in comics 
when you find people introducing characters that aren't in a superhero costume and chucking six of them together very quickly, you'll often just sort of sit there going, well, who the fuck are these people? Like, who was this one over here? That's not a problem that you have here. And I think by virtue of that, you kind of see the level of sophistication that these guys have on the craft. So let's, I mean, let's skip ahead slightly in our notes to uh, Ian Colbard, who, as you say, came up with this concept, I think, together with Dan when they were chatting at a convention or something like that, I guess. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And it's, it's an amazingly, I mean, again, it's one of the most distinctive looking strips in 2000 AD at the moment. I, I, didn't, I wasn't able to find out, but I'm presuming he does all this digitally, I think. Uh, and he has this amazing simplicity where he just seems to do a few lines for a face. And yet, like you say, you instantly recognise who that is. You know, there's no mm-hmm. trouble telling characters apart. And then on top of that, he has this wonderful palette that he introduces in each sort of separate book as well. What do you think of his art? May I could talk about Colbard all day. I mean, if, you, if I had to whittle down to like my top three artists working in comics right now, he would definitely be in there. It's partly, as you say, like the economy, something that I first noticed on World's End, which I think was a Boom Studios book with the sort of anthropomorphized animals where you're looking. There was a character. I can't remember his name. He was a sort of dog. Uh, it, it, I think he it, it, you would look at it and you're just like, I think you've just used three lines like this is his head. And, yeah. and I have a sense of the sadness, the melancholy, the pride. I, 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 I don't know a single artist that can do so much with so little. I don't think, you know, if you're showing comics to someone who's new to it, I don't think that they're going to pick this as the stuff that they most love. I don't think it will jump off the page to them. I think it's one of, he's one of those artists that you get the joy, it's one of those great joys that come with hobbies, you know, that you get pleasure by knowing more and recognising more and becoming more sophisticated in your tastes. And he is a classic example of that. Like, the more you read comics, the more you realise, like, the absolute genius of, of what he manages to achieve on, on the page. For a story like this, which is incredibly reliant on character acting, he provides that for you. I mean, you take, for instance, we've got a character, I think he's called Ludo. Um, he's, he's a sort of very aggressive manager of the security forces, um, Ludo Gentry. Um, there's one page, if, if, if anyone has the book, you can find it. The, the panel in which he is introduced you see everything that you need to know about him. You get the kind of arrogance, you get this hint of cruelty, you get a mercurial sense to his eyes, you get charisma. I'm literally talking about a panel where where you're looking at five, six lines on this guy's face. And that is doing exactly what it needs for the plot. As it turns out, it's kind of a switcheroo and he's not really the one you should be wary of. But everything that is being required by the writing is done effortlessly. And yet at the same time, Corbard, you take the action shots in this book. like They are absolutely brilliant. You take the manner in which information is presented. Look at the scene where you see Bridges for the first time. You start on her hand on the back of a seat and you can almost feel the sort of camera of the comic pan over to her face. And then you take the colouring. The colouring in this book is fucking extraordinary. I mean, it is absolutely world class. And not just in terms of how attractive it is, but that the colour progresses the themes. You know, we start with a scene with CEO of a major corporation. It's drenched in these kind of fluorescent, luxurious sort of pinks and and bright colours. And then we switch to a space scene where... Only when an astronaut shoots himself do we get any light. You just get this powerful sense of loneliness and of scale and of kind of cold, brittle solitude. All of that, again, 
done through the colours. He he is. I mean, I, I honestly, I could sit here for hours and talk about what he manages to do on comics pages, and it still wouldn't be enough to fully express what that man's capable of. It's extraordinary because, as you say, the characters, the dialogue, the interactions, the action sequences are great. And then he, you know, when the camera has to pull back and show us the whole habitat or a space scene or those moments of, you know, is that some sort of cosmic space god lurking in the background? Um, And they're just extraordinary, great, big, detailed vistas that he does. Uh, And it's just it is it is one of the most marvellous things to look at at the moment, isn't it? He, he is truly incredible. And also, I think it's important to note, and this, all of this will apply to Abnet as well, is just how little faff he makes about it. Like, the art itself is faffless. He's not making a big song and dance about anything. It is workmanlike. It is economical. I would take also, and again, both of them deserve credit for this, the character of Brink herself and other female characters. So you have a character here who is not... It, it, not remotely sexualized like we'll often see her in the habitat right in underwear you know really tiny and again there's no attempt to sexualize her whatsoever you compare that to what goes on in american comics in many other pages of 2000 ad it is so much more mature so much more sophisticated and with a very decent moral sense of how it treats female characters very early on in this comic we get a conversation between two female characters which progresses plot now how often you manage to see that in 2000 AD or elsewhere it's quite disarming how rare that kind of thing is. And this is not done, you know, to me, like the worst way of going about this kind of stuff is, you know, remember at the end of, uh, I can't remember which one it is. It's either Endgame or Infinity War of, of the Avengers films. You get this sort of cringeworthy scene where all the female characters suddenly line up and go, oh, no, yes. the women stand yeah. together, right? And you're <laughs> like, well, you've done nothing to earn that moment. You guys haven't done anything to try and advance this stuff. So it's all show but none of the real diligent work. Well, here, what you get is none of the show, none of the, oh, come look at us and look at how sort of moral and ethical we are, but all of the diligent work to try and change the manner in which these stories are sometimes told. It quietly passes the Bechdel test without really anybody noticing, doesn't it? Without making a big song and dance about it, yeah, just doing the work, you know, just getting your yeah. head down and doing the work. And like, really, they deserve so much credit for that. And of course, they mostly don't get it because by virtue of doing it well, you don't get the credit. And Ian Colwell's other work, um, I mean, Brass Sun with Ian Edgerton, which hopefully will eventually return to 2000 AD. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's been a while. Where's that been? Yeah. I, who knows? Um, he's done his own graphic novel, Celeste, which was uh, very weird and very enjoyable. And guests do keep mentioning, like you have done, Wild's End to me, which is also him and Dan Abnett, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Which I have got digitally, but I, haven't, I confess I haven't read it yet. It's absolutely brilliant. I mean, absolutely heart-stoppingly brilliant. It, it, uh, it's a flawless piece of work. There's also the new Dead Audience, um, which was also, I think that was for Vertigo. And that was also very, that was very, very smart, really different. Again, the two of them share, those two works actually share this kind of twisting of genre or at least slopping genre around on itself, which in a way Brink does, but, but the signs of the genre are a bit less obvious with Brink. There you really get that kind of um, junkyard flamboyance that you have with comics of like, now we can do this and we can do this and we can chuck that together with that and we'll just see what happens, um, which is kind of where the joy of comics comes from. Those are all great books. But, but of all of them, I mean, I, for me, Brink is the best, but outside of that, Wild's End, I think really is a masterpiece. And let's go, let's go back to Dan Abnett for a moment because uh, he's been writing 
well, not just for comics, but he's been writing stuff since 1988, and yet it just gets seems to get better all the time. Amazingly prolific, can turn his hand, it would seem, to anything. You know, he's done very well, I think, with the Warhammer novels and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's written American comics. I, mean, I presume he's mentioned in the credits of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Because um, he, fucking he wrote, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking, I put this in our notes. I was thinking of um, well, you mentioned Rob Williams has been in one of your sort of like top. Uh, tier 2000 AD writers yeah. and Dan Abnett must be in that top three as well I would guess and I was thinking of that thing where people say you know you have to to succeed you have to either be good or punctual or nice to work with and I'm <laughs> guessing Dan Abnett is all of those isn't he <laughs> I can't um, I can't speak to the last two I have no idea um, I know he's very very fucking good like it's the breadth. And you know what? Not even just the... I mean, take my life, right? I mean, this is the guy behind Death's Head 2. Do you remember Death's Head 2? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was, what, eight, nine years old when I was buying those old Marvel UK comics? I mean, so he has basically been there throughout my life. And yeah, as you say, I mean, in terms of scale as well, then, you take Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, that team, as you see it on that screen in the cinema, would not exist if not for him. But the work... The work, it's, it's extraordinary, like the variety of it. I mean, Insurrection, which is, which is an absolute classic, on, on, an absolute classic for 2000 AD in the main. The same with Sinister Dexter, which is obviously like a major series. I'm not a huge, I, I kind of like Sinister Dexter. I'm not, I'm not massively on it, but I mean, you can't challenge it as, as sort of in the grouping of at least the top 20 strips, arguably the sort of top 10 strips in its history. But recently, just to look at what he's doing, like Brink, Kingdom, completely different, deeply intelligent, absolutely fascinating world building. The Out, completely different, incredible world building. Lawless, feral and foe. Feral and foe, I don't hear many people talking about it, is genuinely hilarious. Like, it's not often that a comic makes me laugh out loud. Every time that I get um, a prog with feral and foe in it, I will laugh out loud at some point. Like, it, it is the range of the stuff that he does. It's just completely extraordinary. And again, just like Colbard, you sort of get that sense of, you know, he's not really talked about like a superstar writer, you know, and yet the work is just reliably brilliant. Like, you know, if you are reading a script by him, it will be good. So, I mean, to call it good and solid sort of does, does him a disservice, really. It's some of the best writing that you see out there in comics anywhere in the world. And he just does it all the time while keeping his head down and just doing the work. I mean, you've mentioned his great titles uh, for the 2000 AD in the Meg that he's working on at the moment, uh, so many of them. Um, I'm going to guess that Brink is still your pick of those. Uh, you know, the, is it oh, the yeah. top one for you of his? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, for me, absolutely. But, I mean, like I said, I, I, I think it's one of the best comics being produced today anywhere. And, like, I, it's not really a 2000 AD thing. I'm unaware of a series that is so interesting and daring and arresting and has so much to say about the world and about the current state that we're in. And, and really also that is just an example of two creators that have just, you know, you, you know it when you see it, where it's just like their communication, and it doesn't always last. Sometimes you sort of feel like their emotions or that maybe they stop getting on, but they're just like, I don't want to sound like a twat, but I have to say it like they're super simpatico. Like it's just working out. I know that sounds like I'm some kind of corporate schlum, but like, 
they're just they're totally understanding what the other person is going for they're clearly working in harmony with each other each thing that they contribute is assisting the other with what they're doing i mean brink really is i mean it's properly top drawer stuff and you've mentioned some of the sort of uh, character moments and action moments from this second volume. Was there any other parts of this story in the second one that they deliver that were particularly sort of stood out to you? You know, the idea that gets me the most is <laughs> the, the idea of fucking with people's minds through architecture. And I don't know why. Really, this is kind of a comics idea. You, there's a really. Um, do you remember that uh, old Vertigo book, Enigma? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's the Peter Milligan Vigrado one. I mean, there's a similar idea in there. There's these sort of supervillains that. Um, <laughs> this is a very comics idea. They like break into people's houses late at night and rearrange the furniture in, in an exact pattern that drives them completely insane. <laughs> they kill their families. <laughs> It's a very strange idea, but I find it like a, a super, super intriguing one. And you get the same thing here. So th- there's this scene where they sort of realize, you know, the, the guy that's designed the station is going kind of crazy because he, he can't make everything match up. And they realize it's because they, it looks like this sect who are working through this sort of guild of engineers are just moving everything into impossible angles, very ever so slightly different millimetres from where it was supposed to be in some kind of structure that drives the human brain into collapse. And I just find that the most wonderful idea. I shouldn't be laughing at something quite so bleak, but it's a genuinely quite sort of startling idea. And it contributes to that sense you have in the book of no one can be trusted. You know, whoever you speak to, I mean, sometimes it turns out they're all right, but any character you meet, no matter whether they're working for sort of government figures or corporations or whether they're the people opposing them or even a woman, you know, saying, oh, you should be eating more celery and natural food. You can't really trust anyone that the food that you're eating, that the structures around you are all probably starting to drive you a little bit mad. They really contribute to that sense of panic and claustrophobia and despair that just imbues this strip. Fantastic stuff. And I mean, you mentioned that it's bleak. Uh, great science fiction always does that thing that um, sort of reflects back on our own society and our own worries and concerns. So in Brink, they are, uh, you know, a society that's on the edge of extinction, maybe, you know, <laughs> generations away from uh, disappearing. And there's weird cults and conspiracies and sex going on. Does it, does it have any relevance to our, our own experience currently? <laughs> I don't know what you could possibly be alluding to. Uh, what comparison could there be? Um, it is that. And you, and you know, the thing that gets me is, I mean, because obviously, you know, we're getting quite used to fiction. that's about, you know, the world is dead. We killed it um, and all of that. What I find amazing and what I find most kind of upsetting about this strip is the sense of stasis, right? Like if you think of sci-fi, there's always movement. Pretty much, I, 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 I literally can't really think of a sci-fi story where this doesn't apply. The spaceship is moving from one place to another. You're exploring distant galaxies. Even ones, you know, I'm thinking of books like Children of Time, where, you know, Earth, Earth is no longer habitable or is, or is exploded or whatever. The, the remnants of the human race are trying to find a new home. Now, the thing with Brink is they're not, right? They've kind of just accepted it. They're just going to stay on these habitats quite close to where Earth used to be. And what? Like, no one really has any idea. I mean, occasionally someone will go, maybe we should try and propel these, you know, habitats so that we can find a new home. But people just keep on 
raising these sort of logistical, technical problems with why you couldn't do it. So you're just sort of stuck depleting resources, all of you slowly going insane in this claustrophobic conspiracy theory fueled environment, eating synthetic food. It has this deep, trenchant sense of, of despair to it. And that also makes me think a bit about there's often a sort of uh, a concept that we talk about uh, in when you look at sort of political history and economics called pathway dependency. And it's sort of like once something has been done a certain way, these power structures come in and keep on doing it that way because that's the way the system's based. And so you don't sit there. We think of politics as like, how should we solve this problem? But that's not really what it's like. What it's like is how do we change this thing that we've already got? And that can make things very difficult for you when it comes to environmental measures, when it comes to sort of geopolitics, when it comes to internal justice. But here you have that same impression, right? If you just get this pathway dependency is built up on the basis of the corporations are making money. They have a trapped set of consumers. There's no particular reason to want to have to move. Instead, you can just keep on building these habitats, keeping people in them, making them eat this food. And you just get that sense of trenchant despair and stagnation and stasis that comes from that, that I think, unfortunately, speaks really quite profoundly to, to where we are in the world right now. Uh, yeah, it's an amazing reflection back on us. Um, there are four volumes now of Brink. Um, and the, as you say, the 45th anniversary prog has just come out. And book five, uh, Mercury Retrograde, has started uh, which has sort of taken us back to the beginning again. It's gone back to the original events, and but given us a different perception on them, I think, a different sort of viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, we're five pages in, right? So we're not really in a sort of... It's quite hard to tell what the hell is going on. It does feel fundamentally different to what's come before. Um, I'm taking it from the title that we're going to get some more hints as to what the fuck has happened in Mercury. Um, there was a Mercury event at the end of the first book, which, unless I'm forgetting something has only now been alluded to a few times um, since it yes. certainly hasn't been answered with any sort of uh, solidity. Um, so I'm presuming we'll get some answers on that. But it feels like the series is heading in a fundamentally new direction. But, you know, five pages. I mean, it sort of feels weird even saying that five pages. And normally that feels a normal thing to say. But given that I've just read, I don't know, like 100 or 200 pages of it, it, it sort of seems absurd. You know, it's going, oh, well, what could we possibly conclude now? But it feels like, a, like something fundamentally different is happening now. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, they have been hinting about the Mercury event, but yes, it's never been explained. And as you said earlier, I think Dan and Ian, uh, they seem to know what they're doing with this script. We're in capable hands. Yeah, I mean, you trust them, right? I, I, I presume that this story has a set endpoint that they're working towards. Um, I would be very surprised if it didn't. I mean, reading through it, one of the things that struck me was everything seems to have been very well thought out. There's a scene, um, I think it's actually in the first volume, where Bridge is trying to sort of hide from some guys that are trying to kill her. And she locks the door by just sort of, there's a thing on the door where you can trace the L shape with your finger. And I just thought, oh, you've even thought that like that just seems like a very intuitive way given that how we use ipads or whatever right now or our own phones for how you would lock a door in that kind of environment but i've never yes. actually seen it before and it's never actually made a big thing of you know it's just in one small panel and off we go the same with the structure i mean i guess what i haven't mentioned about Colbard is uh how he structures a page which again is is extraordinary where you get this real sense of the details of the space of whether it's a drop of blood 
whether it's someone's expression, whether it's graffiti on walls, whether it's the structure, you get this real sense of what the space looks like. It reminds me a bit of that film Whiplash uh, about the sort of drummer in the jazz group that you can see the people dropping the sort of spit out of their clarinets or, you know, wiping a bit of blood off the drums, just this sense of the surface of areas to make it feel lived in. And then when you get an event with the sort of horror god deity thing, the page just opens out. It just opens the fuck out. So even the structure of the page increases that sense of claustrophobia and then the release that you have whenever the deity comes into it. And that, again, speaks to the themes within the book. Now, when you're dealing with people whose work is like at that level of maturity and sophistication, you generally feel that you're in a pretty safe place <laughs> with, with where the story's going. Indeed. Now, um, we mentioned that Dan's very prolific. He's not. I was listening to an interview with him on Audible because he's also written audio books. And in fact, Brink, the first three volumes of Brink were adapted for audio plays in those oh, 2000 wow. AD ones. Yes, I, I'm guessing you've not actually heard those. Oh, no, no, no. I couldn't give two fucks about comics on audio. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. I mean, God, you know, <laughs> good, good, luck to, good luck to them. Like, I hope it does well for them, and, and I hope there's a market for it. I have absolutely no interest in that at all. I did actually try, you know, they did that Sandman thing, I think, for Audible. Yes. And there was, quite, there was some quite, really quite impressive actors in there. And I was like, oh, wow, if you're putting that kind of money behind it, let's see what you can do. And I think I lasted about three or four minutes with that and just thought, well, I just don't understand what's going on here. Like, why would I... Why is this happening? <laughs> like, what does this do? What does this bring me? Yeah, so, no, it's, it's not for me. Okay. Have you tried it? Oh, yeah, I've listened to them, yes. I have listened to them, and I listened to the Halo Jones and the Judge Dredd America ones. And like yourself, I think they're, they're okay, but I just, like, feel... Yeah, I just the comics is what I want. I mean, it's the same with the Sandman ones. All the Sandman ones <laughs> did to me was make me want to take the books out again. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, they're useful to that extent because you're like, oh, I really like that comic. I'm going to read that comic again. But I can't, I don't really get it. I don't really get it. Recommend us some comics, Ian. What do you, I mean, I'm guessing you suggest Brink to anybody. Uh, you sounds like you suggest Rob Williams, Judge Dredd. Are there any other comics at the moment that you suggest to people? Wild's End, I guess. Oh, yeah, certainly, certainly. Um I think probably the two best indie comics I've read recently, um, there's a book called Melville by Roman Renard. No one's talked about it, um, and it's, it hasn't really gotten any press. It, it's, really, it's really very, very good indeed. I think it's Belgian. I'm not entirely sure. It might be French. Um, really quiet, soft, kind of haunting uh, drama. Um, I would say The Impending Blindness of Billy Scott by Zoe Thorogood is... Like seems like a proper sort of like really impressive new British talent and feels kind of most excitingly to me. It felt very much like the work of someone much younger than me in her. Com I mean, it's really set in austerity Britain. It has that sense of austerity Britain, but its structure feels more almost like a Richard Curtis film like at this it, it, it's it's like yeah it's it's like if you got Ken Loach and Richard Curtis and somehow mix that shit up, which I know sounds completely insane and arguably regrettable, but it works really really well on the page. She's she's quite extraordinary. And for superhero stuff, I just say I mean read Nightwing by Tom Taylor. Nightwing by Tom Taylor is one of the best superhero runs I've seen in ages. Yes, I, that is very good as well. Yes, I've read uh, his recent issues of that. He did that one issue with the artist where it was all entirely sort of one continuous movement, the DeLuca effect of the yeah. the figure just moving through the landscape. Yeah, I mean, even in craft, I haven't seen... 
I mean, I don't think we've seen that kind of craft really in superhero comics since Young Avengers by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey. But more than that, Taylor just loves these characters and he fucking, he fucking gets them, you know? So there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of um, criticism of superhero comics as, you know, the constant second act and nothing ever changes. I've never really understood that criticism because it's not like that's concealed. You know, it's just like, you know, that shit going in. If you don't like that, then, then don't read them. That, that's fine. But that's what they are. That, that's what you're getting. But what you do get is characters that you've lived with your whole life, you know? Um, and when someone can treat, when someone also sort of has that understanding of them and can communicate it in this way, it's really the warmth. I think it makes for a, a, the kind of reading experience that where else do you get it? You know, is it, I mean, what, like EastEnders? It's basically the only other example I could think of where you could live with a character for, for that long. And as it happens, I don't really like EastEnders. <laughs> so <laughs> what I've got is Nightwing. Um, it's really just tremendously, tremendously good superhero comics. Great stuff. Um, going back to the Colbard art, we play this game on the podcast, the Grail Page game, where we imagine that the art is all available and we can afford it, and we get you to pick a page or two or a cover or two from this collection to have and uh, hang on your walls. What would they be? Okay. I mean, okay, wait. All right. So it's not about <laughs> the skill of it, right? It's like this is a fucking, this is a head fuck. It's not about the skill of it. It's more, it's specifically about what I'd want on my walls. Yes. Okay. I mean, in that case, it's that, I think it's the first cover that we got of Bridge sort of pointing the gun at you with a big sort of space god eye thing behind her. Because that's obviously the coolest thing to put on my walls. I don't think it's showing like the sheer scale of the genius that he deploys, which is fundamentally through the sequential sort of nature of it all. But I'll take that for the poster. Although I'm going to tell you right now that it's been made very clear to me by my partner that I cannot put up any more comics art on the walls of this flat or she's going to leave me. So even if that was to turn up, I, I couldn't have it. But in my dream world, sure, I'd go for that. All right, certainly. And that's the cover to this collection as well, isn't it? Oh, is it? Oh, sorry, yeah. mate. I've got a different... Because I'm using the Ultimate Collection thing. I, oh, of course. I don't know. I think it may well be. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, mean, it if, the... it, if it's her pointing a gun with a big eye, then... You know. Yes, it's the one. Great. Well, that becomes virtually yours now, Ian. Nobody else can pick it, and it uh, goes up oh, in wow. the social that, media galleries. That's my NFT. Great. Thank you. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> also, I feel like now that I know it's the cover of the collection, I feel like the most basic man alive. That <laughs> it's like, oh, what what panel would you pick? The cover of the book. That's great. That's great. <laughs> But it would make a great piece of art to hang on a wall if you were allowed to do so. Um, but yeah, you have to have it virtually. <laughs> so Brink Volume 2 is available on the 2000 AD web store. It's twelve ninety nine in hard copy, nine ninety nine digitally, or at the moment, Kindle Comixology is doing it for seven ninety nine in whatever weird shake-up is happening with Comixology and Amazon at the moment. But it does seem to be cheaper there at the moment. Ian, fantastic. Thank you for picking it and coming on and talking about it. And, uh, you know, Dad Abnett and Ian Colbard are just so good at the moment. And as you say, um, it's returned to the prog for the 45th and we're very happy. It's extremely, extremely welcome back to the prog, yeah. Guest projects time, Ian. Um, I'm particularly interested in your book, How to Be a Liberal, Your History of Liberal Thought. Uh, It's an astonishing piece of work. Um, What were your sort of like discoveries while you were researching it and writing it? Well, thanks, Glenn. Um, 
I don't know, I suppose, you know, the thing that gets you when you, you, you do sort of 400 years of history is you keep on realising that, <laughs> I don't know if this is optimistic or pessimistic, but we keep on fighting the same battles over and over. And that you find in like the English Civil War, French Revolution, um, you know, Victorian period, the same debates really around the group identity versus the individual identity and what it is to be free. Um, the demand for conformism and the insistence on rationality and empiricism as a way of processing reality, that these debates just come up again and again and again. I mean, the depressing part of that is it makes it makes the history of politics feel a bit like that superhero second act structure of you're like, oh shit, man, maybe nothing changes. <laughs> you know, maybe Superman isn't really dead. And that also means we haven't gotten rid of tyranny. But the plus side of it is that when you're on the losing side, and for people like me, we've been on the losing side since at least 2016 and realistically much longer than that. Um, it reminds you of, you know, people have been losing much harder than this and then gone on to, to be able to take control again. So, yeah, it is primarily that, that sense of just you find the same debates using the same words and trading in the same ideas taking place even hundreds of years ago in a way that's simultaneously frustrating, but also kind of weirdly optimistic. Yes, I did notice the sort of like groups of people trying to work out the same stuff again and again um, as a sort of theme. I also I was struck by one figure that I thought we should know more about, and I, I confess I didn't know about until I you know um, heard you narrate in your own audio book, which was Harriet Taylor Mill, uh, an astonishing character. Yeah, she's incredible. No one ever speaks to her. We uh, speaks to her. That would be very difficult. She's dead. Um, speaks about her. She's the wife of John Stuart Mill. Um, John Stuart Mill, we do speak about an awful lot. It, it actually turns out that the most important works of John Stuart Mill, the father of liberalism, were in fact basically joint productions with his wife, Harriet Taylor. And this is not something that he ever tried to hide. In fact, he was extremely explicit about her contributions. He said it over and over again. He was ignored. She was then pretty much erased from history. She's a remarkable figure. And for most of their working relationship, they weren't really married. She was married to someone else. And then they met. She couldn't really decide between them. And so she went off to Paris to try and make a call on which of these guys she was going to stay with, both of them called John. And in a very kind of Victorian gentleman-like manner, they they never seemed remotely pissed off with each other, these two guys, by the way. It was always like, oh, no, of course. I mean, I totally understand why you'd be in love with her. You go first and then I'll go second. And, you know, we'll both see who, who comes out of it okay. And she comes back and just goes, I'm not really willing to split up with my husband and I'm not really willing to lose John Stuart Mill either. Uh, it would have been very hard for her. She would have lost the kid. She would have lost all of her property because of Victorian era divorce laws. So instead, they maintained a situation for well over a decade where... The husband was the public face of the marriage to prevent him from being ashamed and humiliated. And John Stuart Mill was the private face of the marriage where that's all of the intimacy and the romance happened. And this weird kind of tripartite romantic relationship was the basis upon which, you know, that you see the birth of modern liberalism. That's the work that they did together in that period. It still seems pretty weird even now. But the truth is, like, they were mostly quite happy with it. You read their love letters to each other, even after sort of 20 years of knowing each other. And they're like lovesick teenagers so it's possible that there's some kind of lesson we can take from that arrangement <laughs> i don't know but it's a very weird living arrangement and very very good things came out of it fantastic I, I should say i checked this morning the digital version of how to be a liberal is i think just over three pounds at the moment price of a cup of coffee as they say that's a fucking bargain yeah <laughs> i oh, ended up bullshit with... really it should be much more expensive but 
I ended up with the audiobook version, which you narrate yourself, and which was my companion uh, on the rowing machine during lockdown uh, for, oh, for many great. a morning. Oh, great. How was, how was, what's it like having to go to a studio and sort of like record that? Dreadful. Absolutely fucking <laughs> dreadful. I hate, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I, I can't really, um, I'm not very good at reading. I know that sounds bad, but like I'm, I'm very bad at just reading off a piece of paper. I, I can't, I, I can't really do it. Um, and there's like a real physical limit to how much of this stuff you can do because you are just talking you know even even in a conversation like this right where you're you're predominantly asking me questions there's at least gaps where I can listen to you for a moment I mean you're reading a whole book it is just remorseless on on the throat so your throat starts to give in about like an hour in like it takes almost no time it just starts to give in and then I was just so wary of kind of sounding really sullen and funereal, predominantly because my editor had said to me, you know, when you read your last book on thing, you sounded really sullen and funereal. And I was like, oh, <laughs> shit, man. Like, so I got really paranoid about it. I was like, and so I really tried to give it some oomph this time. And then as soon as I came off it, people were like, no, you still sound really sullen and quite depressed about everything. I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. So look, if I do a third book, then I'm going to get some, I'm going to make them pay some actor, someone with like, you know, charisma needs to come in and read that thing. I don't care how technical it is. I don't care how much economics is in it. Someone else needs to read it because I can't fucking do that stuff anymore. Oh some, some cheerful souls can have to come along and read it for you instead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I can stand there glaring at them for how well they're doing it, but also at least have a cup of tea and just rest my throat and not have to go through that hellish experience ever again. And you're also a podcaster. You're on two of my favourite political podcasts, The Bunker and Oh God, What Now, formerly known as Romaniacs. Uh, Andrew Harrison, of course, is a producer on those and a, a panellist himself, a host himself. He's been mm. on this podcast as well. Um, has he? You know, oh, great. Yes, he has. He did uh, the Terramex, oh, the Pat Mills, Dave Gibbons, ABC <laughs> Warriors one, with, you know, <laughs> the one that ends up with the giant robot returning to Liverpool while everybody sings You'll Never Walk Alone. I can't think why Andrew chose that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds so unlike him. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, I mean, obviously you're very busy. Um, anything else you want to mention at the moment? Uh, no, no, not really. No, that's it. I'm just, you know. Doing the day job. Are you working on anything coming up? Uh, I, I'm not allowed to talk about the thing that I'm, that I'm working on yeah, the rest of the time. The rest of the time is just doing sort of columns uh, for the eye in the podcast that you mentioned and trying to make sense of what the fuck is happening to, the, to, to us right now. And you wrote very movingly in the eye recently about a sort of uh, revelation, a good moment you'd had while in the pub with Mike Mulcher, the PR droid for 2000 AD. Yes, it's very rare that good things will happen to you in the pub with Michael Mulcher. Um, what will mostly happen is that he'll start talking about the English Civil War at length. I can't even begin to describe the lengths that he will go through talking about this. Um, and three or four hours later, you'll stumble out into the early morning and desperately try to escape. It's very rare. However, I did have this one experience. It really hurt me. I mean, I, I wrote this. They were like, can you write something about you know, like a real change happened in your life because of something a friend said. And I, I knew exactly what I wanted to write. I knew the conversation with Mulcher that I wanted to talk about. And I just thought, well, the trouble is that means I've got to say nice things about him in public. And I don't even really like doing that in private, let alone in public. And so I wrote him like an email and just sort of said, I'm not happy about this. I'm not happy about what's about to happen here, but I'm going to have to do it. 
Um, and I think his glee at that piece was predominantly about my evident discomfort about having to be so generous, <laughs> uh, so socially and emotionally generous, which does pain me deeply in my core. Um, and he did once say, it was really a look on his face. We were talking about religion. I don't really have much time for religion. I'm quite, um, I'm quite critical of religion, really. Uh, and he just had a look on his face when talking about the concept of grace, the religious concept of grace, um, which was quite pained and sort of spoke, I think, to this quite complex relationship that he has with religion and always had done. And that really helped me, you know, like thinking about politics and religion and just ideas in general in the years afterwards, because, you know, seeing it written down, that word grace, it just means fuck all to me. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it means as much to me as watching a flock of birds. Like it just has no emotional resonance, but to see that a word can be imbued with all this meaning by someone else and the struggles that they have through it. That's how you access different ways of looking at the world and different ways of thinking about the world. Something which we almost pride ourselves on not doing now, you know, with social media and whatever, that we don't go anywhere near a different view of the world. And we're always kind of startled and horrified when we discover that other people have them. It really helps to be sat in front of someone in person with them talking about this stuff. It gives you access to the kind of emotional life behind ideas, not the reasoning, not the sort of ostensible intellectual structures of them, but the emotional life behind them. Um, and I got that from him. It doesn't make up for all the many, many years of listening to him talk about the minutiae of uh, the Earl of Manchester's campaign in the English Civil War <laughs> at two o'clock in the morning on his seventh pint. But it was at least something. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I did speak to Michael about it, and he mentioned that you'd made his mum cry, but in a nice way. Um. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't tell you about all the times I made her cry in a bad way. We've forgotten <laughs> about those, of course. <laughs> Ian, thank you so much for giving up your time uh, this lunchtime in a sort of very busy, busy working day for you. As you say, the world is um, terrible at the moment, but at least we have comics to distract us. Exactly, exactly. Thank you so much for having me, man. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, Ian. And thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, find all the links, including links to Ian's work, at megacitybookclub.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the 2000AD forums. Uh, or email me, mcbcpodcast at gmail.com, if you'd like to uh, comment, criticise, or suggest a book to come on the show with. And that's it. Till we're passing judgment on another great book. It's goodbye from me and... It's goodbye from me. Wow. <laughs>